Remaining or going seem like rather diametrically opposed positions, as made famous in the song uh, Baby It's Cold Outside, where there is a constant toing and froing over whether someone will stay or leave. And in many ways, this is the way we think about mission and spirituality, one being uh, about the internal life, the other being a secondary action about going that often really don't touch each other. However, my guest today suggests in reading the Gospel of John that mission and spirituality actually go together much more like another famous song, like a horse and carriage. He talks about missional theosis in the Gospel of John as being a matter of abide and go. If you don't know already, my guest today is Michael J. Gorman, who holds the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore, Maryland. He is the author of numerous books, including The Death of the Messiah and Birth of the New Covenant, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Reading Paul, Becoming the Gospel, and uh, Participating in Christ. Uh, please welcome Michael J. Gorman back to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, Michael Gorman, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you, Liam. It's great to be here once again. Thank you. Yes, I should have said welcome back. Uh, we were just Thanks. talking yeah, before right. off mic. It's about three years since our, our uh, other interview together, and um, yeah, it's very exciting to have you back. Today, we're talking about Abide and Go, uh, Missional Theosis in the Gospel of John out with Cascade Books. Uh, so... A, a while ago, I used to play this game a bit. I haven't played it for a while, but I'm bringing it back with you, uh, which is a bit of like a conceptual lightning round. Basically, I just want, I'm going to throw a few terms that are prominent in the book, uh, and I'm just after your you know, <clears throat> best, most succinct, ideally tweetable uh, definitions uh, of the following. If you go a little over the tweet, that's fine. We can thread it. Um, but right, so I'll, I'll give you one at a time, and we'll see, we'll see how you go. So... Uh, the first word for our conceptual lightning round is, or two words here actually, is Missio Dei. Uh, God's Rescue Project. Oh, look at that. It's really punchy. That's, that's actually almost a hashtag, except abbreviation. <laughs> We're really getting it going. I love it. All right. Uh, the next one is Theosis. That'll be longer. Let's try <laughs> um, transformative participation in the life of <clears throat> the triune God, from start to finish. Oh, it's also it's good. Proce process. Yeah, great. Uh, and the final one is uh, spirituality. Yeah, that's a tough one because it means so many different things to different people. I would say, um, let's make it Trinitarian. Life in Christ before God the Father by the power of the Spirit. There you go. So there you go, folks. If you've got any essays to write and you're looking for, you know, a bit of a guiding light of how to unpack some very big theological terms, uh, Love, Rinse, Repeat and Michael Gorman have you covered. Uh, so th thank you for that. Hopefully some of this will start to get fleshed well, out. I thought, I thought for sure, Liam, you were going to add missional theosis to the lightning round. So. <laughs> well, maybe do you, do you want to we'll have a crack at missional theosis right now? Off the, off the I'll, I'll pass on it right now. We'll get to it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, so, well, let's talk about the book in general. So you've been kind of working with these ideas of participation and missional theosis for a little while now, but predominantly it's been to do with, uh, with St. Paul. Uh, what was it like coming to a different biblical author uh, 
and started to look at these themes in an entirely new, not only genre of writing, but a new author. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I had originally planned this project to broaden uh, the missional and participatory themes to the entire New Testament. And it took me about two months to figure out that that would be a very big project, (laughs) very long. And I, and therefore I, I, I narrowed it down to working on, on John. And of course, moving from argumentative writings to narrative writing, even though Paul has a narrative character to it. And I've never worked, uh, I've taught the Gospels, but I've never worked in them in, in nearly the same uh, depth or breadth as I have in Paul. So it really, it was kind of a challenge. But what made it, for me at least, what made it um, uh moved along pretty quickly in terms of of making progress was beginning to see some similarities between John and Paul, some correlations that I thought were interesting and that I thought were also significant. Although I don't really say in the book a whole lot about how that happened and what those connections are. I think an astute reader might see some of them. And I certainly was was encouraged to see that at least I think John and, and Paul are and somewhere on the same page. And maybe that's something else we want to talk about at some point, but it, it was a challenge, but I'm, I'm really glad now that I did it. Mm, that's really, yeah, it's great. It's been, I know it's been used around the uh, United Church College in Sydney a fair bit. Uh, and oh, good. when I was talking about interviewing you, people were interested because I think it was mm. um, assigned with the recent Johannine class there. Um, well, yeah, I guess let's just touch a bit more on that Paul and John. So do you think, John, is their ideas are generally in complement? If they were sitting across a table together, do you think there'd be a point of, uh, you know, argumentation about uh, how they articulate this or what, where they think yeah. it should lie? You know, I before I wrote this book, I hadn't I hadn't made many connections at all, and I didn't think that there would be. <clears throat> and I had an interesting experience in the middle of writing this book. I, I, was in, I gave a seminar at Cambridge University, one of the theological colleges at Cambridge, and the great biblical scholar Richard Bauckham was in attendance. And at the end of my presentation, I said, which was primarily about the thesis of the book, at the end of the presentation, I said, and you know, and this is for a different day, but I think at the end of the day, John might just be a Pauline gospel. <laughs> and uh, Richard Bauckham, who's done work in lots of things, but especially more recently in the Gospel of John, just kind of sat there and rolled his eyes. So uh, I, I made the same proposal at a lecture at a, another uh, institution a few months later and got a kind of similar response. Then I found out that there's a student working on John as a Pauline Gospel in his PhD work at Princeton Theological Seminary. So I my fear is that this was a crazy idea where at least getting confirmed by somebody else that, that there's a possibility here. And of course, other people have tried to make these connections too. I, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of similarities between them on some really key issues if we want to talk about spirituality or missional theosis. Do they see eye to eye? No. And a lot of people have said some of the differences are significant. But when we think about the language of Christ in us and us in Christ, that's in, in a full-blown way, that's only in Paul and John. Mm remain in me or abide in me as I abide in you, uh, John 15, obviously. That's really critical to the, the height, to the, to the depth of, of Paul's spirituality. And in Paul, of course, we have Christ in us and us in Christ as, as 
uh, Romans 8 said it very succinctly, but if you pull lots of other places together, we see it throughout the correspondence. That's one thing. And then another thing I think is really important is how this plays out in real life, that what I call the master story in, in Paul, uh, Philippians 2 and the story of Christ being in the form of God and emptying himself, becoming human and all of that. As, as a lot of people have pointed out, and I think it's very true, is um, in, in a way a kind of summary of John 13, or at least there's a similarity between the narrative of John 13. There's some vocabulary that's similar, but the, the narrative itself of, of literally taking off something and literally taking the posture of a slave in that episode in John 13, and the story Paul tells in Philippians 2 I think those are very important similarities. And, and so I, I want to do more about that and say more about that in some subsequent research, perhaps. But um, yeah, I think across from the table, they would at least see eye to eye. And John might even recognize in Paul one of his sources might be too strong of a term, but one of his remote inspirations. Mm. And um, Paul might see in John the story of Jesus that he wishes he had told. Mm, that's good. That's maybe, pretty, yeah, maybe. really fascinating. Just, yeah. just a possibility there. Yeah. yeah, thank you. So uh, you write about the Gospel of John being a missionary text, at least in part because it is a community-forming text. I think that might be interesting to break down a little because I think often those two things get separated. We often think that there's a kind of a primary task of the church to kind of you know, be the church, to form those on the inside and then a kind of secondary detached task um, to engage in mission. And, and that task often can then get outsourced to agencies or specialists because of that divide. Um, yeah. Do you think John is, is challenging that kind of a divide between an internal and then a secondary derivative external going? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I don't think John's alone in challenging it. I think it's a, a misreading of the, almost the entirety of Scripture to see those mm. in some way separate. Going back to Abraham, the, the, the call of Abraham is to bring, uh, to, to form a people, God's forming of a people so that they can be a blessing, if you will, to other people or a nation to be a blessing to others, to other nations. And uh, that, I think, flows throughout the entire scriptural narrative. When we get to the Gospel of John, I mean, we, we, we see places like John 17 where Christ called Jesus there calls the disciples to be a set apart, consecrated, holy community, but for the purpose of bearing witness in the world mm. of, of, of others being aware of, of who he is and what he has come to do. So um, missiologists. Sorry about that. No, no, all good. I forgot to turn the phone off. That's all right. Yeah, it's easily done. Turned off the house phone, but not that one. All right. <laughs> Coming back. Editing. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, missiologists often use the language or have some missiologists have used the language of centripetal and centrifugal um, activity in the church. So there's this interesting dynamic of, the kind of the inward journey and the outward journey that have to be connected. And I think we see that very clearly in John 17, but we see it elsewhere too. In John 15, the, 
the mission discourse as it unfolds there is about abide in me, but go. And that's obviously where the title of the book comes from, to abide in Christ, but also to go. And that as you go, you need to abide. And if you're really going to abide, you need to go. So there's this dynamic in the Gospel of John of, of really what we might call a deep spirituality, which is at the same time missional. And when the church divides them up and kind of, as you were hinting at, suggests or even assigns its, its activity in the world to some other entities, whether they're even, um, in some cases, secular entities, um, that, that seems to me to be a fundal, fundamental betrayal of the nature of, of what the church is depicted as, not only in the Gospel of John, but throughout the New Testament. So mm-hmm. we want to keep those together. And frankly, I think most people who have been deeply involved in, in mission know that uh, in, in the sense of outreach, whether it's evangelistic or service or whatever, justice work, without a deep spirituality, that, either, that goes one of two directions. It either get, goes to burnout or it goes to secularization. And uh, eventually, what was a Christian mission becomes um, a, a secular nonprofit, you know. Mm, yeah really 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 important yeah yeah i think so and and as you say it is this common theme not just in john but in the very idea understanding of god too like you draw on uh the work of john flett early on about the idea of you know god is a missionary god and and that's not like there's god's being and then a secondary act it's all part of the the identity of god in the story that that yeah john flett of course there um great uh, great work he's on he's building on carl barth's idea Mm. that, that, that god is inherently and other Reformed theologians in particular, um, God is inherently, by virtue of being love and by virtue of being triune, is both in community and also in uh, perpetual self-giving. So, as I argue in the book, we need to start with that fundamental premise that God is mm. love, and that's what makes it true to say that God is missional, mm. uh, that God is both internally and externally involved in um, doing something that is, if we can use this uh, anthrop- somewhat anthropomorphic language, doing something for others in- inherently. Yep. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. Mm, thank you for that. Sure. Uh, so as part of the book's basic claim, you write, Johannine spirituality fundamentally consists in the mutual indelling of the triune God and Jesus' disciples such that disciples participate in the divine love and life and thereby in the life-giving mission of God. Hmm. I have two questions kind of coming out of this. The first is, I guess, you know, because this is something that we're thinking about and we often try to wrestle with intellectually, what should it feel like to participate in divine love and life? Does that have a feeling that you think you can go, like, I, I know I'm doing it because I feel a certain thing, maybe not all the time, but and maybe not um, the same for everyone, but what are your thoughts there? Yeah, my... My first thought about that is I have no clue <laughs> what it feels like. I guess I'm not because I'm suspicious of feelings and emotions, but because I think there's a whole range of possibilities that one could feel in this mode of participation. Um, you know, it, it, we see emotions in, in Jesus throughout the gospel. He weeps mm. the tomb of Lazarus. He um, becomes... Uh, Oh, well, I don't even know what the word is. In John 13, he becomes, um, if it's an emotion, he becomes completely humble in his mm. posture before others. 
Um, and at the same time, he, throughout the gospel, wants to tell the disciples, I want you to have joy. I want you, I, I want mm. my joy to be in you and those kinds of things. So I, I think it depends on the, the nature of the activity that one's doing and participating in, in the life and, and mission of God, because if Jesus is any um, example, those feelings vary from, from circumstance to circumstance. I think a more appropriate question might be not what does it feel like, but what does it look like? Mm. And um, the feelings will come from, from, the, from the looking like. But I, again, I, I, I'll go back to John 13. It's kind of the paradigmatic, for John, the paradigmatic, but not the only, a, a, parad- a paradigmatic um, statement of what it looks like to participate in the, in the life of God. Um, the great German scholar Udo Schneller calls what happens in John 13, the self-exegesis of God. I think it's a lovely phrase. What, is, what does God look like when God's, um, God's in the self-revealing mode? Well, there we have it. And uh, so, obviously, Jesus says in that passage, if I'm your um, teacher and Lord, uh, you will do what I do. So mm-hmm. that, that, that paradigm of, of self-giving love and service to others becomes for John the, the hallmark of what, of what it looks like mm-hmm. um, to engage in this participatory life. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Sure. Uh, something might, that again might um, surprise some readers potentially is in your treatment of John 20, uh, we are talking about the forgiveness of sins as the content of mission entrusted to the disciples who are to be Christ-like by the power of the Spirit. I guess how does forgiveness of sins uh, be viewed, um, come to be viewed as part of the mission? Uh, and, and I guess how might that transform how we think of such an act? Again, usually forgiveness of sins often kind of maybe isolated or, again, kind of um, sectioned off to the work of the church in, 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 on a, in a, during a service kind of thing? Like how, how does the yeah. forgiveness of sin yeah. become missional? And then how does that change how, what we might be thinking when we hear those words? Well, it's interesting as, I, as I've been thinking about the connections between John and Paul, I think there are some similarities here too, where in John, for instance, John 8, Jesus says, um, if you remain in your sins, you will die. I mean, there's this connection between sin and death, which of course we also find in Paul. Mm. And, it seems to me that if, if John 10 kind of gives us the, the summary of John's understanding of Jesus' purpose, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly or have it in the full, that this, this connection then between sin or sins on the one hand and the opposite of, that, of life on the other hand, that is death, means that when the church is in mission where we are um, participating in God's offer of forgiveness and life in, in the world, to the world. And so uh, if, if life is sort of the bottom line, there, there are things that have to be overcome. There are things that have to be dealt with, things that have to be released for that life to be fully experienced. And so the, the church can't really do its mission without acknowledging the reality of sin and sins and and be part of God's um, rescue project, to go back to that first phrase, mm-hmm. that is um, part of, you know, when Jesus says, 
if when you forgive uh, sins, they, they will be forgiven, and if, when you don't, they'll be retained. That passive voice suggests that ultimately God is the one who forgives. God is the one who doesn't forgive in some cases. The church helps with that and participates in that. Uh, and it's an extension of, of shalom. It's the extension of the gift of God's peace that we uh, have the privilege of helping people not only be convicted of their sin, the work of the Spirit, but be forgiven for that sin. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. Uh, in, the, uh, in the penultimate chapter of the book, you explore uh, extreme missional theosis and the ethic of enemy love. Um, what drew you to pay such a close and extended attention to enemy love since, you know, as you note, the command to love your enemies is itself, at least in an explicit sense, uh, absent from the gospel? Yeah, that's exactly why I, I got interested, because mm. it is absent. And also because a number of interpreters of Paul have said things like, John believes and, and presents Jesus as teaching that um, Christians only have to love one another. After all, that's what John 13 says, love one another. And as a matter of fact, it would be wrong and perhaps against the will of God, at least according to John's gospel, to 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 care about and to love others outside the community, which seems completely far-fetched, completely unchristian, and I think ultimately is not only unchristian, but un, uh, un-Johannine. So I got interested because simple, I think, had, had misinterpreted that. Mm. But also, uh, that pr- prompted me to sort of start looking at, are there, are there hints in the gospel that God so loved the world means that God so loved uh, the rebellious world, the sinful world, the world that hates God in, in return. And yeah, not, not only are there some specific texts about that, um, but also some examples began to see, well, you know, Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus and Jesus says, you know, that's not the way to go here. Um, then I started thinking about back to John 13, you know, uh, Who's present? Judas is present, and Peter is present. And from the very beginning of the story, we find out that Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what's happening next, and he still uh, engages in these acts of enemy love. Mm. So those kinds of scenes began to to resonate with me, and then I said, well, what about John 4? Uh, the Samaritans, they're not exactly the best friends of the Jews in the first century. So can that be construed as a kind of, of enemy love? It's, it's usually construed as a, as a boundary crossing mm. event. But is it more than that? So, I mean, that's, that's kind of how the argument began to unfold and then turn that into, a, turn that into an essay that uh, can, can be argued was the, mm. was the point of that chapter. But uh, in retrospect, in some ways, I'm happiest about that chapter of all the chapters of the book because I think it does something. I mean, I, there's lots of things I think are new in the book, mm. but but very few people have made that kind of argument, and I think it's a pretty compelling argument. Mm. Of course, well, I wrote it, so I, of course I think it's compelling. But, <laughs> well, that's a good that's a good like yeah. for people to go get the book and see is that you know indeed as compelling as <laughs> which it is. I I, I attest to that. Um, one of, one other point about that I forgot to say um, mm-hmm. in in the question of theosis, I think this is really critical. What does it mean to become like the God who loves the the world that doesn't love God mm-hmm. and even hates God, rebels against God in the in 
some of the Dead Sea Scrolls materials, we find uh, almost almost language of theosis of, of imitating God or becoming like God. And how do you do that? Well, God loves, God hates his enemies. Mm. So therefore, what should you do? Hate your enemies and, mm. and go after them, so to speak. Well, John does, implies just the opposite of that. To be like God is to love the mm. Peters and the Judases in, in, the, in the life of God expressed in the, in the life of Jesus. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, so, people who may be preaching, preaching from the lectionary, uh, John kind of gets squeezed into the lectionary, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get his own year. Um, and We're the, waiting for year D to appear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so because of that, you don't often get lots of John, and, and by the nature of the lectionary, you get shorter passages anyway. I guess, how do you think people can start to draw out these ideas of, of missional theosis, of the abide and go? of John, um, you know, within the constraints of, of lectionary based preaching? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I often use this illustration about, about things you don't notice till you notice them. Hmm. Um, we have a, I don't know what you call them in your part of the world. We call them highways, a long, you know, a long road with lots of, uh, businesses and buildings on every side. So, I remember when I was a, a young man, probably in my early 20s, for the first time I ever, I had to buy tires um, for our car. And um, I didn't know where to go. So I started driving down this highway. And before I knew it, there were like 20 tire shops <laughs> where I could buy tires for, the, um, for my car. And I think it's the same thing with certain biblical images and certain biblical themes. When you start looking for them, they appear. Mm. And... I don't think that participation language or, or mission language or theosis language is constrained or con- I shouldn't say constrained, um, is uh, only found in places like the Gospel of John that we see in, in John 13, 15, 17, for instance. Once you start looking for it, there's, there's participatory language in other places. And so that's, that's certainly um, helpful. There's obviously... Um, the language of mission in other places. The, the question then becomes, can you spot it? Can you, can you keep an eye out for it? And I mean, I'll give you an example. When Jesus asked the disciples in Mark, can you be baptized with the baptism with which um, I will be baptized? Well, everybody hears that and, and pretty much assumes it is a reference to Jesus' upcoming suffering and death, which it is. Mm-hmm. But notice that language. It's the language of baptism. It's the language of, of liquid. It's the language of, uh, of participation. It's the language of being immersed in something. And to what end? Well, Jesus' death has a goal, uh, a telos, of uh, being the ransom event for the sins of the world, for the people of the world. And so, I mean, the death of Jesus is obviously missional to be baptized into that death. So, I mean, that's the kind of passage that lends itself when you start looking for it to participatory uh, interpretations. And there are others, I think, as well. But again, it's you have to look mm. to find. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, well, great. Well, as we come to a, a close here, we have a little game we'll play, uh, which is uh, <laughs> a game called pairings. So like if you're in a restaurant and, you know, you get the advice of which wine pairs well with which food, um, <laughs> we're playing a game like that. So with abide and go, we need to pair uh, a meal, so something that would, you know, if you've got to sit down and eat something and read the book, something that would pair well, a meal, a piece of music, uh, whether a song or a whole album or what have you, uh, and another book. So once they've read Abide and Go, what would be another book that would complement well uh, the discussion happening here? So meal, song, and book. I'm not sure I can talk too much about meals and songs, but let me say <laughs> something about a book. Um, I This book is a sequel, in a sense, to my book, um, Part- Becoming the Gospel, Paul, mm. Participation and Mission. Um, for other authors, uh, there's a fellow in Vancouver, Ross Hastings, has written a nice little book on John and mission, which I quote a few times in my own book. Um, and I think if, if people were to, to take a look at those two books, they might find lots of other possibilities in the, uh, in the bibliography. But I'm, I'm thrilled that Mission and connection between mission and participation seems to be taking off, not only in the world of, of biblical studies, but in the world of mission more generally, and mm. to see it being worked out in specific ways in, in the church. So um, I'll have to think more about the meal and other uh, uh, corollary activities. But in terms of reading, <laughs> there's a couple of books to get started. Yeah, great. Well, the book is Abide and Go, Missional Theosis in the Gospel of John, Michael Gorman, thank you for coming on the podcast and speaking about it. I encourage you all to pick it up, uh, whether you're just, you know, whether you're a preacher, whether you're a lay Christian, whatever your engagement with the faith is, this is a book that is well worth your time. Thank you so much, Liam. Glad to be here. No worries.